0: I am happy to welcome you all for this year's Sardar Patel memory Lectures. For the first time, these lectures are being held in this beautiful city of Bangalore.
1: This is All India Radio archives. Recording. Apart
0: from his great role in the freedom struggle. Sardar Patel was Free India's first Minister for Information and Broadcasting. In 1955, All India Radio introduced this program of lectures in memory of this great leader. Every year, an eminent person who has specialized in a particular branch of knowledge is invited to present the results of his study and experience for the larger benefit of the public. I am grateful to Justice Y V Chandrachur, former Chief Justice of India, for kindly agreeing to deliver this year's lectures. Justice Chandrachud is an outstanding figure in the world of law. He was born in 1920 at Pune and had a brilliant academic career. He won several awards and stood first in first class in the law examination of Bombay University in 1942. He was an advocate in Bombay High Court till 1961 and a judge there till 1972. He was judge of Supreme Court of India from 1972 to 1978 and Chief Justice of India from 1978 to 1985. Justice Chandrachut has headed many commissions and is also associated with many educational and legal bodies. He has recently been appointed by the government of Assam and Meghalaya to define the boundaries between the two states in the light of the 8th schedule of Constitution of India. The topic chosen by Justice Chandrachur for this year is the Basics of Indian Constitution, its search for social justice and the role of judges. He has chosen a topical and thought-provoking subject. The phrase social justice reminds me of what our Prime Minister Sir Gandhi stated in non-aligned summit at Harare last year. I quote: "The most remarkable development of our age is the awakening of human consciousness. The souls of long-suppressed peoples have found utterance. They will not tolerate injustice and deprivation. These aspirations and the possibilities opened by the technology have to be matched." Unquote. I am sure. We will all be benefited by the learned speaker's study of the basics of our Constitution, its search for social justice, and the role of judges. I now request Justice Chandrachur to deliver the year's Sardar Patel Memorial lecture. Justice Chandrachur.
2: The judges, members of the bar, ladies and gentlemen, I am happy and consider it an honor to be asked by the All India Radio to deliver these lectures in the Sardar Patel Memorial Lecture Series. All India Radio Sardar Vallabhai Patel was unquestionably a most sagacious statesman and one of the ablest administrators in independent India. He did not have, because of his advanced age, a long tenure in the politics of the post-independent era. But the brevity of his tenure makes his achievements all the more striking. He spearheaded the effort to unify our country. He achieved unprecedented success in bringing the country under one banner, and to him must go the credit in a large measure for building up our democratic edifice. He played a major role in the drafting of the Indian Constitution. He preserved from the past what was good for us and was quick to see the need for the change in areas where change was needed most. The words which he spoke in the Constituent Assembly in 1949 have a ring of relevance, perhaps in a greater measure, even today. He said, and I quote, as a man of experience I tell you, do not quarrel with the instruments with which you want to work. He is a bad workman who quarrels with his instruments. Every man wants some sort of encouragement. Nobody wants to put in work when every day he is criticized and ridiculed in public." Unquote. He valued the intellectual integrity of civil servants and the freedom which they need and deserve in the discharge of their onerous responsibilities. He said, they quote again today my secretary can write a note opposed to my views. I have given that freedom to all my secretaries, I told them if you do not give your honest opinion for fear that it will displease your minister, please then you had better go. I will bring another secretary. You have agreed to share responsibility." The founding of this lecture series by the All India Radio is a just tribute to the memory of an outstanding statesman and administrator that Sardar Patel was. I am very happy to be here. And I'm glad that other cities like Bangalore and Bombay have broken Delhi's monopoly of holding this lecture series. After the partition of our country in 1947, The Constituent Assembly functioned as a sovereign body and spent three long years to frame our Constitution. The Constituent Assembly consisted of men of vast learning and varied experience of life. The Simla Conference was the first major step towards the transfer of power from the British. It is not without significance that the similar Conference was held a few weeks after the Second World War ended on 8th May 1945 with the surrender of Germany. The theme of Nuremberg Trials of 1945-46 was not merely war crimes, but crimes against humanity. The European Convention of Human Rights which derived its inspiration from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, was signed at Rome in 1950. These events have left their unmistakable impress on the Indian Constitution in the protection of human rights. Article 38 of the Constitution, which is one of the directive principles of state policy, provides That the state shall strive to promote the welfare of the people by securing and protecting as effectively as it may a social order in which justice, social, economic, and political, shall inform all the institutions of the national life. The experience of the struggle for freedom in India led to the inclusion of the chapter on fundamental rights in the constitution. It is around the fundamental rights and directive principles of state policy that the basics of the Indian Constitution revolve. Articles 14, 15, 16, 17, 19, 21, 25, 30, 31C and 32 form the cornerstone of the Indian Constitution. The right to equality the prohibition of discrimination on grounds of religion, race, caste, sex, or place of birth, equality of opportunity in matters of public employment, abolition of untouchability, the rights conferred by Article 19 like freedom of speech and expression, the right to assemble peaceably and without arms, the right to form associations, the right to move freely throughout the territory of India, the right to settle in any part of India, and the right to practice any profession, occupation, trade or business, the right conferred by Article 21 to life and personal liberty, the right to freedom of conscience and to free profession, practice and propagation of religion, and the right of minorities to establish and administer educational institutions of their choice, are some of the more important fundamental rights conferred by Part 3 of the Constitution. These rights can be enforced by a petition under Article 32, which significantly is itself a fundamental right. We also have now a new chapter, Part 4a, in the Constitution, which was inserted in 1977. That is a chapter on fundamental duties A strong reminder that rights have reciprocal obligations. Those who assert their rights must be conscious of their social obligations. The judiciary plays an important role in the protection of fundamental rights of the citizens and non-citizens alike. Interpretation of the constitution is a sensitive task which often involves the judges in the criticism that they make law instead of interpreting it. The judge as a lawmaker is a controversial concept on which jurists hold divergent opinions. In the Federalist Papers, the judiciary is described as the least dangerous branch of government. But there is a growing awareness today of the great power which is vested in the judiciary. Until recently, the only acceptable judicial technique was one of strict legalism.
1: All India Radio A
2: distinguished Australian Chief Justice, Sir Owen Dixon, said, and I quote, It is taken for granted that the decision of the court will be correct or incorrect, right or wrong, as it conforms with ascertained legal principles and applies them according to a standard of reasoning which is not personal to the judges themselves. It is a tacit assumption, but it is basal. The court would feel that the function it performed had lost its meaning and purpose if there were no external standard of legal correctness. The belief that law can be deciphered by a clearly discoverable rule which proves no personal interpretational involvement by the judge, has now come to be questioned and challenged in the context of the widening horizons of law. The English language, which is a mixture of the Germanic tongue of the Saxons and the Latin of the Norman conquerors, is rich both in concepts and in ambiguities. Therefore, judges have to give content and meaning to mere words. President Roosevelt, in his message of December 8, 1908, to the Congress said, and I quote, The chief lawmakers may be, and often are, the judges, because they are the final seat of authority. Every time they interpret contract, property, vested rights, due process of law, liberty, they necessarily enact into law parts of a system of social philosophy. And as such interpretation is fundamental, they give direction to all lawmaking. The decisions of the courts on economic and social questions depend upon their economic and social philosophy. And for the peaceful progress of our people during the 20th century, we shall owe most to those judges who hold to a twentieth-century economic and social philosophy and not to a long outgrown philosophy which was itself the product of primitive economic conditions." The role of the judiciary and the scope of judicial interpretation have expanded enormously in recent times partly because of the tremendous growth of statutory intervention in the present era. Indeed, though it may seem paradoxical, larger the volume of legislation, greater the scope for judgment law. Even the best of dressmen leave gaps to be filled judicially and hidden ambiguities to be resolved judiciously. Another reason for the expansion of judgment law is the existence as in India and the United States of America, of entrenched declarations of individual rights. A Bill of Rights, like the one contained in Part 3 of the Indian Constitution, which is enforceable through the courts, both facilitates and necessitates the potential creativity of judges. The process of interpretation is a process whereby one penetrates the thoughts, the inspirations, and the language of other people in order to understand them. And in the case of a judge, as in the case of a musician, interpretation involves the process whereby one reproduces or executes the inspirations and the language of others. Howsoever the interpreter may try or desire to be faithful to the text before him, He is entitled, and sometimes forced to exercise his freedom to interpret. For no law, any more than a poem or a musical composition, is so expressed as to leave no scope for nuances. The unraveling of such nuances is the soul and source of creative interpretation. As long back as in 1899, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said that it is not true that in practice a given word has one meaning and no other. A word generally has several meanings, even in the dictionary, and the uncertainties arising from the existence of different shades of meaning have to be resolved by the technique of interpretation. The judge then has to fill the gaps and to clarify the uncertainties. While engaged in that task, he has preferred to make choices. Or in the words of Justice Holmes, the judge has to exercise the sovereign prerogative of choice. An eminent British judge, Lord Lathcliffe, has said, and I quote, a judge might commend himself to the most rigid principle of adherence to precedent." might close his day's work every evening in the conviction that he had said nothing and decided nothing that was not in accordance with what his predecessors had said or decided before him.
1: This is Yet, even so, recorded.
2: their words, when he repeats them, mean something materially different in his mouth. Just because 20th century man has not the power to speak with the tone or accent of the man of the 17th or the 18th or the 19th, Century. The context is different. The range of reference is different. And whatever is intention, the hallowed words of authority themselves are a fresh coinage, newly minted in his speech. In that limited sense, time uses us all as an instrument of innovation. I would only like to add that judicial discretion is not to be equated with sheer arbitrariness. And the judge, though a lawmaker, is never an arbitrary lawmaker, because every civilized legal system has designed limits of judicial freedom. Let us then turn to some of the salient provisions of the Indian Constitution and see how judges have given meaning and content to the search of that monumental document for social justice. Article 14 of the Constitution, which guarantees equality before law, provides that the state shall not deny to any person equality before the law or the equal protection of the laws within the territory of India. Most of the modern constitutions contain provisions which prohibit arbitrary discrimination and ensure equal rights. For example, Article 3.1 of the Constitution of which Germany provides that all persons shall be equal before the law. Article 40.1 of the Constitution of IR provides that all citizens shall, as human persons, be held equal before the law. The Canadian Bill of Rights of 1960 safeguards the right of the individual to equality before the law and the equal protection of the law. Article 28.1 of the Constitution of Cyprus contains a more explicit and expanded formulation of the guarantee of equality to the effect that all persons are equal before the law, the administration and justice, and are entitled to equal protection thereof and treatment thereby. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America, which was introduced in 1868, provides, by Section 1, besides conferring other guarantees like the due process of law, that the state shall not deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Several international instruments which protect fundamental human rights give pride of place to the right to equal treatment. The twin safeguards of equality before law and the equal protection of laws are acknowledged as two of the most important human rights in the universe of freedom. That is, wherever freedom to assert human rights is recognized, whether under unwritten constitutions as in Great Britain or under written constitutions as in India and America, these twin safeguards are the subject of a debate which knows no end nor ever will, for the reason that the precise content of these rights eludes a clear definition. The mandate of the Constitution is that no one shall be denied equality before the law or the equal protection of laws. What exactly does this majestic declaration mean? Does it imply numerical equality? And if so, how will the state conduct its affairs efficiently and effectively, or does it signify an abstract notion that the state shall accord equal respect and treatment to all interests, what is even of greater implications and importance? Does the guarantee of equality embody any definite values or is it value-free? Are not classifications permissible so as to ensure that unequals are not treated equally For to treat persons equally who are situated unequally is a glaring negation of equality. The doors of five-star hotels are equally open to all. Is that the constitutional dream of an equal society? Is preferential treatment, which means unequal and special treatment, not permissible to women and children, or to the oppressed and the depressed? who has suffered the humiliation of their caste label for centuries. Article 15, one of our Constitution prohibits discrimination on grounds of religion, race, caste, sex or place of birth. But by clause 3 of that article, the state can make special provisions for women and children. And by clause 4 of Article 15, the state has the power to make special provisions for the advancement of any socially and educationally backward classes of citizens or for the scheduled castes and the scheduled tribes. Similar power is conferred on the state by Article 15.4 for making reservations in public posts in favour of any backward class of citizens which is not adequately represented in the state's services. England has no written constitution, And yet, equality before the law is regarded as a fundamental attribute of the British legal system. Since the British Parliament is absolutely supreme, courts have no power to declare a law made by the Parliament as invalid on the ground that it violates any fundamental tenet of the Constitution. Therefore, in England, The principle of equality is applied in a procedural sense, which connotes that all persons are equal before the law and that independent tribunals must administer the laws with an equal hand and without an evil eye. English judges, despite constraints on the judicial power of review flowing out of the supremacy of the parliament, have extended the fundamental characteristic of equality to substantive matters, as, for example, by saying that discretionary powers must not be conferred so as to shut out effective judicial review, and that all persons must have equal access to judicial tribunals. This shows how the English judges have now come to acknowledge that judges do make law and that they have to make it if law is to serve a social purpose. Indeed, it is no longer possible in England to take the old theory seriously that judges only declare law. Lord Denning,
1: who is the most outstanding
2: exponent in England, of the reforming role of the judiciary, says that there is no certainty in the law. It is a complete will of the wisp and that persons who approach the courts for vindication of personal rights are interested in getting justice and not with any particular strict rule of law. Lord Reed denounced in 1972 the theory that judges do not make law by saying, and I quote, those with a taste for fairy tales seem to have thought that in some Aladdin's cave there is hidden the common law in all its splendor, and that on a judge's appointment there descends on him knowledge of the magic words open sisemi. Bad decisions are given when the judge has muddled the password and the wrong door opens, but we do not believe in fairy tales anymore." The right to equality which is guaranteed by Article 14 of the Indian Constitution, is a concrete manifestation of the declaration in the glorious preamble of our Constitution that the people of India had solemnly resolved to secure to all its citizens equality of status and of opportunity. The right conferred by Article 14 is available to citizens and non-citizens alike. Article 15 and 16 which together constitute a code of equality along with Article 14 are however available only to citizens of India. Article 14 imposes an obligation on the state by which expression is meant every authority created by statute and functioning within the territory of India or under the control of the government of India. The Supreme Court held in the Rajasthan Electricity Board case that the expression other authorities in Article 12, which defines the state, includes all constitutional or statutory authorities on whom powers are conferred by law. The concept of state has undergone a radical change in recent times and as observed by Justice Matthew in Sukhdev's case, the state can no longer be looked upon simply as a coercive machinery wielding the thunderbolt of authority. The Constitution bench held in that case that the Oil and Natural Gas Commission, the Life Insurance Corporation, and the Industrial Finance Corporation are authorities within the meaning of Article 12. The judges, by expanding the scope of the expression other authorities, have made the guarantee of equality meaningful and more effective. An eminent writer on the Constitution, H. M. Sirwai, has observed that the Constitution should be so interpreted that the governing power, wherever located, must be subjected to fundamental constitutional limitations since the essential problem of liberty and equality is freedom from arbitrary restrictions. In America, too, the emphasis is to bring a larger gamut of activities within the sweep of constitutional limitations, as would appear from the decision of the American Supreme Court in Marsh versus Alabama.
1: The court held
2: that though a certain town was private property owned by a corporation, yet the corporation was privately performing a public function and consequently it was subject to the constitutional standards regarding civil rights and equal protection of the law by which the state was bound. In the well-known decision of our Supreme Court, in the International Airport Authorities case, Justice Bhagwati, speaking for himself, Justice Suzaapurkar and Justice Patak held that the International Airport Authority was an instrumentality or agency of the central government, and being there for a state was under an obligation not to act arbitrarily. That judgment marks a significant development of law in its emphasis on Article 14 as inhibiting arbitrary action by the state, its instrumentalities, or agencies. Article 14, which guarantees equality, is not to be understood as being absolute and unqualified in its sweep and content. The reason is that the theory of classification is implanted upon that guarantee by judicial interpretation. It is open to the state to make a law which involves a classification founded upon an intelligible differentia which distinguishes persons who are grouped together from those who are left out and which has a rational relation to the object sought to be achieved by the law. Article 14 forbids class legislation because the state cannot single out members of a class and and subject them to a treatment different from the treatment given to other members of the same class but article 14 does not forbid classification of persons into different groups if they are situated differently equals must be treated equally unequals can be classified into separate categories and treated differently to treat unequals differently is not to treat them unequally even in ajay hasia's case decided in 1981, which involved a question regarding admission to an engineering college. Our Supreme Court, while observing that the content and reach of Article 14 must not be confused with the doctrine of classification, held that the doctrine of classification is a judicial formula for determining whether the impugned action is arbitrary and therefore amounts to denial of equality. I must add that though classification is permissible if it satisfies the twin tests, the state ought not to make minute classifications and subclassifications which will eat into the vitals of the benevolent doctrine of equality enunciated in Article 14. The right to equality, it must be mentioned, is regarded as a basic feature of the Constitution, which is beyond the sweep of Parliament's power to amend the Constitution under Article 368. The principle which was accepted by the majority of judges in Kesha Bharati's case, decided in 1973, was that the Parliament has no power to amend the Constitution so as to damage or destroy any of its basic features. Liberty and equality, to quote Sri Sirwai again, are words of passion and power. They were the watchwords of the French Revolution. They inspired the unforgettable words of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Our founding fathers not only gave to liberty and equality a place of permanence in the sonorous preamble of our Constitution, but they gave to those abiding principles a concrete shape in Articles 14, 15 and 16 and by abolishing untouchability in Article 17. Ladies and gentlemen, may I very briefly call your attention to some of the very important and interesting decisions which have been rendered by the Supreme Court of India during the last few years. As I told you, Article 15.4, which I will quickly read to you, provides that nothing in the article shall prevent the state from making any special provision for the advancement of any socially and educationally backward classes of citizens or for the scheduled castes and the scheduled tribes. Similarly, Article 16 which deals with equality of opportunity in matters of public employment provides by clause 4 that nothing in the article shall prevent the state from making any provision for the reservation of appointments or posts in favour of any backward class of citizens which in the opinion of the state is not adequately represented in the services under the state. Reservations for the scheduled castes, scheduled tribes and backward class of citizens is a topic which has thrown up an immense amount of controversy in our country. Experience shows that this is one of the most salient provisions of our constitution, because there is a large section of society in our country which has suffered the humiliation of its caste and which has wilted under the pressure and injustice of the harsh and cruel treatment which has been meted out that section for centuries. Unless special protection is given to them, unless special reservations are made to them in government posts, and unless special provisions are made by law for the protection of their rights and for their emancipation, it would be impossible to bring into existence an egalitarian society which is a dream of the constitution. But I have often said that merely making reservations for the scheduled castes the scheduled tribes and the backward classes of citizens, in public employments and in other spheres like the education institutions, is not enough for discharging the obligation which the constitution has imposed upon the state. And time and again it has been said
1: all India radio that we must
2: make support. some special effort to see that the boys and girls belonging to these unfortunate sections of society are provided the wherewithal in particularly educational matters, which will enable them to compete with the boys and girls who have been far more fortunate than them. What we find today is that posts are reserved or seats are reserved for backward classes of students or for the belonging to scheduled castes and scheduled tribes in educational institutions and there are a large number of dropouts which is something which should make us all think about. Money is wasted on their education. Opportunities are wasted while educating them and the simple reason is that though the rules are liberalized while admitting students belonging to these categories to the educational institutions hardly any effort is made to ensure that they assume or they or they obtain or acquire an educational excellence which is anywhere comparable to the excellence achieved by the other students. Some special education, some special coaching in in the initial stages is essential if reservations have to serve any significant social purpose, the duly appointed purpose under the Constitution. There is a controversy whether there should be reservations in posts of promotion also, but experience has shown that if posts of promotion are kept reserved for the same backward class of citizens on a much lesser scale, the efficiency of public services. This is, will not necessarily suffer some encouragement greater than is available to the normal ordinary class of citizens is necessary if we have to produce a feeling and a sense of equality which alone can give a feeling of social security for the poor the downtrodden people of our country who have been denied justice over the years the only thing uh, which has to be borne in mind is that no vested right is created in the reservations, and it should never happen that anyone should say, "Well, I would prefer to be backward because it is then alone that I'll be able to get a reserved seat." Well, ladies and gentlemen, there are other very interesting uh, decisions rendered by the Supreme Court, and. Uh, well, as you know, there has been a very fierce controversy raging around the imposition of the death sentence, for example. Well, Article 21 says that no person shall be deprived of his life or liberty except in accordance with the procedure established by law. And in Butchinson's case, varied arguments covering a vast canvas were advanced before the Supreme Court. Was decided by a majority, that the death sentence is valid. After the decision in the case and during the arguments in that case, what was mostly impressed upon the court was that death sentence produces inequality in a very different sense because statistics, not only in our country, but the statistics all over the world will show that the person who is says, hanged is eventually a forgotten. poor litigant. The rich man who commits a murder is seldom sentenced to death. It's a poor man who commits a murder who is sentenced to death. And why is that so? It happens because the rich man can afford a good lawyer who, even if he fails to persuade the judge that his client is not guilty, at least succeeds in persuading the judge that the maximum sentence should not be imposed upon him. And the judge, having rejected the argument on the point of conviction, being after all a human being, is inclined to accept the argument on the question of sentence. There is some such thing as judicial compromise in the decisions. That was the reason why it was said that death sentence produce, produces inequalities. There are countries, for example, statistics in the United States of America show that it is a black man who is more often sentenced to death than the white man. That is because, it is not because the judges are opposed to black people, but that is because the black man being poor cannot afford a lawyer who will plead his case persuasively and forcefully. As a sidelight of uh, Article 21, which assures to every person his life and liberty, and that it shall not be taken away except in accordance with the procedure established by law. You may be all aware that section 303 of the Penal Code, which said that if a person commits a murder whilst he is under a sentence of death, he shall be sentenced to death. In Bachchan Singh's case, the Supreme Court held that the, normal rule in a death, that the normal rule in a case of murder should be this that the sentence should be one of life imprisonment, and, and that the sentence of death should be imposed in the rarest of rare cases. Now, section 303 leaves no discretion to the it takes away his discretion by providing, statutorily, that if a person commits murder while she is under a sentence of death, he shall be sentenced to death. The Supreme Court set aside Set down this section as unconstitutional, being voilative of Article 21. Take the case of a person who has committed a murder and is been sentenced to death. Supposing he has been released on parole by the government. He is released on parole and temporarily he is a free man. He comes home and finds that his property has been taken away forcibly by a neighbour. He finds that his wife is being exploited by a neighbor. He finds his wife in a strange situation in which she is helpless. Under intense provocation of the moment, he commits the murder. Is it fair? Is it just? Is it equitable? That such a person must be sentenced to death for the mere reason that he is under a sentence of death while he commits a second murder. It is on this ground that the Supreme Court held That section 303 of the Penal Code is unconstitutional and numerous other decisions but ladies and gentlemen i will invite your attention to those decisions in my lecture before you tomorrow uh, for this day i must thank you for listening to me and uh, most of my lecture today will be occupied in taking you and drawing your attention to some of the important decisions which the supreme court of india has rendered during the last